0: Welcome in to another edition of Ask the Experts. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Dave Callender, and back with us on the show today, it's uh, it's Canada's top real estate agent, Faisal Susie Walla of REMAX Twin City Realty. Hi, Faisal, good to see you again.
1: Great to see you, Dave. How are you?
0: I'm doing very well, and uh, glad to have you back on the show once again. Lots of interesting topics to cover this time. And of course, we'll start off by saying that if you'd like to uh, learn more as you listen to the show today you can always go to Faisal's website at homeshack.com you can also call him at 519-624-5555 and if you just want a good read why don't you go to Amazon and order up the book The Real Deal which is still selling very very well I understand
1: yes yes I'm very pleased with the uh, way it's all being accepted
0: Well, we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, later on in the show. But as we usually do, let's start things off by just talking about uh, how the market is looking this fall.
1: Well, we've come out of a very, very vibrant market. Uh, The spring and summer, as we've talked about, has been record-breaking. You know, we're up. Uh, 26% over last year in some areas uh, depending on the home. Our average price point on a single detached home is close to a million dollars in the region, which is unbelievable. If someone would have told me that a few years ago, I would have said that's going to take years to get to, but here we are almost doubled over the last five years um, on property values. very vibrant market. Certainly, a lot of um, demand still exists. As we come into the fall, we're finding fewer multiple offers happening. So it's a good opportunity for the uh, buyers to really look at what the inventory is, and this may be actually a good time throughout, uh, you know, October, November, and December, to really look at the homes that are on the market. Because remember, the homes that come onto the market this time of year are typically motivated sellers. They're not just looking at, let's see how the market does, because there's some sort of uh, need for them to sell if they're putting their house on the market in this season, especially with winter coming. And typically we find the rise in the market through the spring market, which is March, April, May, and right through to June. So demand is still very high. Uh, inventory is low however the multiple offers have declined um, you know we're seeing maybe three to five offers coming in on properties as opposed to eight, 10, 12 offers that we've been used to throughout the summer
0: uh, let's uh, move on to our next topic then I know that you wanted to discuss the Canada mortgage and housing changes that are coming up uh, what are the changes that are coming along
1: well there's a few changes um, in principle here. So there's been a lot of back paddling that CMHC has had to do because they realized that the moves they made back in July of 2020, so a year ago from this July, uh, really didn't help them. In fact, they lost a lot of market share. Uh, People We're looking at alternate means of financing. So what had happened was the original, if you go back 2018, 2019, the credit score requirement was 620. Then they said, oh, this is not good. We want to increase people's credit scores qualifying to 680. When they increased to 680, those who were hovering around that 620 or 650 credit score were simply not qualifying for a Canada Mortgage Housing Corporation mortgage. So to explain what a CMHC mortgage is, If you are putting less than 20% down, the government of Canada steps in and says, okay, we'll insure your mortgage, we'll charge you a hefty premium, up to 4% of the value of that mortgage is a premium that is tacked onto your mortgage. So to give you an example, if you are purchasing a home with 5% down and your mortgage is $500,000, you could be looking at a $20,000 premium attached uh, or, sorry, yeah, $20,000 premium attached to that mortgage. Um, so your actual mortgage is now $520. Now, remember, you put 5% down. So your mortgage should have been $475. But instead of that, it goes the other way. So these premiums stopped coming in, and the government lost a lot of revenue in premiums because they're now no longer um, insuring these mortgages because they've made it very tough. They also raised the qualifying bar and said that no more than you know 32% or 34% of your total um, uh, income can go towards your debt service. So there's GDS, which is gross debt service, and then there's TDS, which is total debt service. Now, the GDS part is your principal interest and in taxes. So they're saying, okay, well, if you're making $100,000, um, you're limited to $34,000 of that going towards principal interest and taxes. Now what they've done is backpedal and said, okay, that didn't work. So we're going to now allow you to have a credit score as low as 600. And that will now bring more people into the market. And we will raise the TDS and the GDS from the 32, 34 to 39 and 40, four so it allows more qualifying with less income lower credit scores but what initially happened back in 2020 it took a large chunk of the buying population out of the market forced them to rent and we saw what happened to the rental market all of a sudden there was there was an influx of renters coming into the market investors were making out like bandits because they're getting 30 40% premiums people were saying we'll pay up front we we were getting bidding wars on rental properties as a result of Again, lack of inventory. So every time the government has tried to come up with a band-aid solution to the problem that we're having, they've just made it worse, quite honestly. Um, Making it more difficult for buyers to get into the market, well, then they had to go rent or they had to get alternate financing, private mortgages. Hurts the government because now their revenue stream is gone from the CMHC premiums. Hurts the buyer because now they have to go rent or pay premiums to private lenders in order to qualify. This year, they've shifted things up again, and a lot of new um, mandates are being followed right now where they're increasing, like I said, uh, the ability of people to afford to buy, but they're not allowing mortgages, uh, the funds to come from borrowed money. So if you have to repay the debt of your down payment That money cannot be used as your down payment. Then we've got the stress test on top of that, which is essentially 2% more than the lender's rate or 5.25% is what you have to qualify for in order to buy a home. So this is again, putting a lot of uh, stress on buyers to qualify. I'm all for the stress test in that we have to be realistic. We could be looking at three to five years from now where the interest rates may very well be at 5%. So the entire purpose of this stress test is to ensure that someone does not get caught with a rate, maybe they're getting 2.99% right now, but the banks and the government want to ensure that if that rate was 5.25%, which is the bank benchmark, that you can still afford to carry on with your mortgage. And if you do not qualify at 5.25%, then you're out Because if that rate goes up, the last thing anybody wants to see is people losing their homes.
0: It, It sounds like you're in favor that things are starting to change back, but does it go far enough? Is there anything else you would like to see them change?
1: these are you know these solutions that Canada Mortgage Housing and the government are coming up with are just temporary solutions. Nothing is going to stop this market from continuing to rise until we see more inventory. We're not going to see more inventory until the municipalities start issuing more building permits, until we see more development happening and Every level of government has been so slow to move and initiate these mandates and these policies. Look, the Ontario government has a mandate for intensification and higher density developments, but the municipal levels don't agree. You can watch the evening news at any time and see the amount of resistance towards development that every region is facing. It's that whole, not my backyard, type of mentality that has stopped and unfortunately starts at that level, but it also ends at the political level and the politicians need to really look a take a hard look at affordable housing and say how do we create more housing if there's more housing if there's more supply naturally the values will start Declining and you'll start seeing more people able to come into the marketplace, but until such things happen we're going to see this vicious cycle continuing and it's really an unsustainable vicious cycle. People's incomes are not rising at the level that these homes are, but with interest rates being low, so you know you could have a stress test and you can have all these uh, checks and balances, but when the interest rates are this low. The average person who's making or a family that's making $100,000 has no problem jumping up $50,000, $75,000 or $100,000 in a bidding war situation when they're put into that. And we're going to talk a little bit about bidding wars and you know how that's impacting people right now. But that is the problem. People are not looking at $100,000 as $100,000. They're looking at it, well, it's only $350 more a month. So I might as well bite the bullet and pay it. So there's a lot of other things that have to happen. Supply is the biggest problem. Municipalities are the second problem. And we need to issue more building permits. We need to allow more land to be developed within these regions. And until that happens, we're going to have this problem.
0: Welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for joining us today. Faisal Susie Susiwala is my guest today. Faisal is Canada's top real estate agent with REMAX Twin City Realty and the author of The Real Deal, now available at amazon.ca you can learn more at homeshack.com or by calling them at 519-624-5555 so uh i don't think anyone will miss the fact that we recently had an election Uh, a lot of people uh of the opinion that it wasn't really a necessary election but we had it it's done now that it's over what can we expect
1: to see in the real estate world faisal Oh, well, we're going to see all those promises fulfilled, obviously. That's going to be the first thing we're going to see, right? But uh, what were those promises? Promises were affordable housing. But there was a lot of chatter and a lot of information that was coming out. Whether it's real or not, it's to be determined. And so first off, I hope that the affordable housing and the the aid that is supposed to be there for uh, people to get into the housing market will actually come through. And look, if, if we see the loosening of some rules, I think we will allow more people to come into the marketplace. But again, as we said earlier before the break, that unless and until we see more inventory, and more building permits being issued, more development happening, this is not a problem that's going to go away, especially with the amount of immigration that we're expecting to come in and the backlog of that, when 400,000 new immigrants come into Canada and 50% of that population is expected to come into Ontario, majority of which lands into Toronto and then disperses an hour to an hour and a half from that area, where are all of these people going to live? That's what's going to continue driving this market extremely, extremely hard. But the promises that were made let's see what happens. What my concern is some of the whispers that we heard, one of which was capital gains tax on principal residents. That's a huge concern to me. And it should be a huge concern to everyone. In fact, if that actually comes to pass, just think about the impact. And how is that going to roll out? Is it going to be capital gains on the value of your home from the date you bought it or is it going to be capital gains assessed on you from the date that this new rule is implemented and you got to remember that the money that you spent to buy your principal residence was used after taxes were paid on that money so now you're going to be you've already paid tax on that money before you bought your principal residence because it wasn't a business that you were buying and you can't use corporate money to buy your principal residence. Now you're going to sell your principal residence that you paid with after tax money and get taxed on it again. And if you recall about three or four years ago, there was reporting starting to be required when you disposed of any real estate, including your principal residence that never used to happen before. So now on your income tax filing, every time you sell your principal residence, you're letting the government know what your home sold for and how much it sold for. And that is being reported. And when that came into play, I think it was 2016 or 2017, I said right there and then that this is data that's being collected to see what kind of profits and what kind of gains people are realizing in order to assess If there's some tax money to be recovered, look, we've been spending money like drunken sailors right now, and that recovery has to happen, and they're going to look at whatever possibilities there are to get some of this money back. The real estate market has done very, very well, and as a result of that, that seems to be... An opportunity for the government to get their hands in there and take a piece of that pie as well and recover some of this funds. So my concern is, look, if that's going to happen, at the very least, the fair way to do it is to have a valuation as at the date that this new tax is implemented, but not going back to when you originally bought your home. If you lived in your home for 30 or 40 years, you could be looking at a massive amount of tax liability if it goes back to that. This is all unclear. Um, I know it's been denied, but there's a lot of chatter about it. And I hope that it is just rumors and it's not going to actually be implemented. The other tax that we've heard about is wealth tax. Again, a very concerning tax because this is your net worth your real estate, your stock portfolio, your RSPs, whatever you've got that creates your net worth, is that something that we would be comfortable having taxed? Again, majority of that money has been realized after tax dollars. So how can there be a justification for that? But as we know, these things happen, and we have to just deal with it when it does happen. Uh, if you were to take a
0: guess and look into your crystal ball, Faisal, how likely do you think that that certain tax
1: coming into effect will be? I think that the capital gains tax, some format of it is coming. The, the U.S. has capital gains tax on principal residence. When you dispose of your principal residence, you pay capital gains tax. However, the difference there is that you get to write off the mortgage expense and the, and, and the cost of operation of that asset. So there is a balance. So I cannot imagine that the government would say, hey, if you bought your house in 1991 for 215,000, and it's worth a million dollars today, we're gonna to tax you on, you know, $785,000. I can't imagine that happening. What I can imagine is they'll say, okay, January 1st, 2022, state the value, have an appraisal on the value of your home. Whatever that is, you're gonna have to put that on your tax return. And whenever you sell your property, that moment moving forward, you're gonna get taxed on that dollar. And that's, again, not as bad as the other scenario, but I still feel it's extremely unfair for principal residences to be taxed, especially if we haven't had the opportunity to write off our expenses, including our mortgages.
0: Do you think that that's gonna result in people just uh, staying in their homes forever and never
1: selling? Yes, and guess what that's going to do? Create a housing shortage. So this is it. This is exactly what my point is, that all of these Band-Aid solutions, like I really think the government needs to have a task force of intelligent people who are at the ground level doing this day in and day out and saying, "Okay, what challenges are you facing? How can we help alleviate some of this and what needs to be done? And this is it just seems that it's a sort of uh, top to bottom um sort of a process as opposed to looking at what's happening in the trenches and then coming up with a solution after that
0: and uh your prediction for the wealth tax how likely is that
1: i think i think it's less unlike less likely that that would happen um how do you even monitor that or how you gauge that and and just the administration of that would be would be a nightmare in my opinion
0: well, uh, one other thing that was hinted at, and we've talked about it on the show before, is the elimination of blind bidding as well. We have to take a short break, but when we come back, though, we'll definitely get into that topic because it's 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 really a big one and one that I know you want to discuss. My guest is Faisal Suzuwala of Remax Twin City Realty. Online at homeshack.com. Easy to remember. Or give him a call at 519 624 Fifty-five, fifty-five, and if you want to learn even more about the man go to amazon.ca and uh, take a look for his book the real deal we'll take another short break but we'll be back very shortly with more of ask the experts here on city news 570 for joining us today on ask the experts my guest is Faisal Susie Wall a Canada's top real estate agent with Remax Twin City Realty his website you'll find it at homeshack.com or you can call him at 519 624 5555. 55. Just before the break, if you've just joined us, we were talking about some of the things that we can expect in the real estate world now that the election is over, some of the things that are likely to happen, not so likely. Uh, in past shows, we talked about the idea of eliminating blind bidding. Uh, how, how much closer are we to that happening?
1: Well, Prime Minister Trudeau had that as one of his mandates and promises that that's something that will be looked at and possibly implemented. So blind bidding, as, as we all have experienced over the last couple of years, is uh, when a seller has a home on the market, uh, a listing date is set, an offer date is set. On that offer date, bids are to be presented or offers are be, to be presented to the seller. The seller and the seller's agent have full access to see what the listing or what the offering prices are and have all the information in front of them who the buyer is what the deposit is um the closing date and the price at that point the seller's agent may go back to several of the non uh, winning offers and say, look, we're going to give you an opportunity here to improve your offer if you want to continue to participate in this negotiation. They also have the option of just taking the best offer on the table, which really isn't a great idea, but this is what happens. The risk to the buyer is that the buyer has no idea what the best offer on the table is. So, for example, you could have an offer for 700000 the second best offer is six hundred ninety and six seventy five, and so on. The $700,000 may be an acceptable offer to you as a seller. But as an agent, it's my responsibility to you as a seller to see if I can do even better than the best offer that's on the table. So what do I do? I go back to all of the other buyers and say, I'm going to give you another shot to do better. But I don't touch the best offer on the table because that one we know is the best and we may just actually accept it if nobody improves. But let's just say that the person that was at 690 comes in at 710. Then you go back to the 700 and say hey do you want to do any better now you can't tell them what the other offer is or how much they need to improve you're just going to say in order for you to participate in this negotiation you'll have to improve your offer otherwise we're going to move forward with another offer and this type of thing can go on for you know quite some time until everybody walks away from the table and you're sitting there with the best offer and there's some strategies and techniques that we as realtors use to ensure that we don't lose the best offer on the table. So you don't send all the offers back. And I'm shocked when I do hear that agents do that, but that's what we do. So now this is where the best offer may be 50, 60, 70, or a hundred thousand dollars higher than the second best offer. They'll never know, but this is what happens. And this is the aspect of blind bidding. So what's being proposed is transparency that all offers should be known. Basically, let's call it a live auction. Everybody knows what everybody's bidding. If you want to win that offer, you just bid up by another $1,000. So it it allows you not to overpay in principle. But what we're not taking into account here is the impulsiveness and the emotion and that, um, that need to win that happens now australia has open bidding it's basically a live auction outside of the home now you can imagine how high the emotions must run and it doesn't matter you could go to an auction to buy a vehicle or farm equipment or whatever you're buying sometimes it it, it gets lost that you're buying that product or that item and it becomes about winning and there's a lot of impulsive decisions that happen when you just want to win In blind bidding, the value, in my opinion, to a buyer is that there's some thoughtfulness there. You have the opportunity to see the home. You go home, you think about it, you talk to your family, you advise your agent what your maximum is. This is what you want to submit. Yes, you may or may not get a second chance to improve your offer, but you're going to have a thought process and you're not really in that position where you know I got to win, I got to beat this other person. And, And there is that that pause that you have whereas in a live situation I think that's going to be missed and where does it end you know where does that end like that can it just keep going is there going to be a cut-off time it's not so much a silent auction because that it's going to be live like an auction and this is where I think that the government may think that that's a better option to go with but I would argue that The blind bidding still allows a thoughtful process to occur, and um, there's a lot of pause before you make that decision, and there's time to make that decision as opposed to being impulsive in the moment and getting caught up, and it's too late afterwards because you can't back out once you, because those deposits are held in trust in advance, so once you've raised your hand and said, I'm buying it, and the hammer goes down, you've purchased that property.
0: I I, I certainly get what you mean because just buying nonsense on eBay, I certainly have gotten like, you get into it at the last minute. It's like, I'm going to go even higher just so I could win. I can only imagine what that would be like for something as high value as a home. Now you say that that is the situation in, in
1: Australia. Does, does it work for them? It does, but it gets out of, it gets out of hand. It's out of control. And this is where I think that, you know, monitor, like learn from, learn from the successes of others and learn from the failures of others. And I don't believe that that's a successful model I'm seeing. I watch some of these auctions. I can't believe the amount of money and where it starts, what the expectation was and where it actually ends up. So,
0: uh, so how close are we to actually uh, adopting the elimination of blind bidding and, and how soon might we see that happen?
1: Well, Prime Minister Trudeau has that as one of his election mandates, right? So let's see where it goes. Was it a promise? Uh, Was it just a platform to run by? Because that was hot in the topics right now. I don't know. I do think that there's maybe there's a hybrid solution to it. Um, I don't know what that would be, but I don't believe that just eliminating blind bidding is the right thing to do. Not at this point. And and, and as much as buyers think that that's going to work in their favor, I think it could really go against them as well, because those emotions will run very, very high. I've been at car auctions where I know I'm overpaying, but again, it's that desire to win that makes you raise your hand.
0: Moving on to our next topic, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about uh, sort of discuss full commission versus some of the discount brokers we're seeing out there. And in preparation for the show, you sent me a link to a, a marketplace uh, uh, investigation that the CBC did. And I I was kind of shocked by what I saw. Uh, why don't you tell us a bit about that, that investigation?
1: So that investigation really revolved around um, the tactics that realtors will use in order to avoid selling properties that are sh- that are giving them less commission than they would normally get in a traditional sale. Um, so there, a, a discount brokerage is one which may be a mere posting on MLS. So they charge you a flat fee, they put it on MLS, they leave it up to the seller to arrange the viewings, arrange the open houses, arrange the offer documents. So everything is basically a private transaction I, it's almost the same as going to the hardware store and buying a for sale sign and putting it on your front lawn with your phone number on it and having people call it. Look, there there are markets in which that may very well work. And for sale by owners and private for sale and um, discount brokers have been around forever. In fact, in the industry, we call them disruptors. And that's been a disruptor forever. However, it hasn't been a successful disruptor. And Marketplace, although their um, focus was to expose agents and the tactics that they are using to avoid selling low commission properties, also brought to light that a seller should really think about who they are going to engage to represent their home and are they doing themselves any favors Or are they doing themselves more harm? Yes, on the onset, it may appear that you're going to save 5%. But it's great to save 5%, but have you left $100,000 on the table? Because regardless of the techniques or the tactics that people or agents may have used to avoid selling that home, the home did not sell. And it did not sell because it was not marketed properly. It was not given to a network. The cooperation level wasn't there. And let's face it, the agent felt that their compensation should have been higher for the work that they were doing and the ability to bring the right amount of dollars to the seller. So 5% is great to save, but if that impacts your bottom line by 50,000 or $100,000, there should be some thought given to marketing brand network and the ability to bring that right buyer to your home and that's where realtors come into play and i'm not advocating for hey don't try to save a dollar i'm just saying give it a second thought and really know what who you are actually engaged with to represent you, because if you're not getting the right guidance and it could be something as simple as missing something on a form that could cost you thousands of dollars. So there's two ways of looking at that. And marketplace certainly did a great job in exposing all of the negative tactics that realtors will use, but it's something for sellers to really consider that are you going to be a victim of those tactics um and what is the benefit cost wise to go with a discount broker or a for sale by owner company as opposed to using a qualified realtor to represent you
0: as i said faisal i was shocked at the number of uh, realtors in the toronto area where the investigation happened that just wouldn't bring these kind of sales to the attention of their buyers And I guess I kind of like to think to myself, well, that's a big city problem. That wouldn't happen here in KW, but
1: but does it? Well, I I can't say that it does or doesn't. But what I can say is that um, those properties were perhaps not exposed properly to the right agents. And the agents that were going to those properties were, for the most part, trying to get a listing. And for the most part, just trying to market themselves to the seller saying, hey, this is probably not going to work for you. So here's so it's it's just it's 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 really awful. And I saw that and I was cringing at all of it. Uh, But yes, does it happen? Of course, it happens. Look, it's the livelihood of a an agent. And if one job is paying you X amount of dollars and the other job is paying you one tenth of that for the same amount of effort, what job are you going to take? And that's really the bottom line here. If there's seven properties for sale and and property number six is offering you the lowest commission, chances are, unfortunately, that that agent is not going to push that property if they have any influence. Remember, these properties are being introduced to those buyers through MLS for the most part because they are posted on the MLS system. But a buyer has a buyer's representative that they have committed to, to, and that buyer's representation agreement states that that buyer's agent is entitled to receiving two or two and a half percent of the price, purchase price as their commission rate. Can you imagine that that buyer's agent, who knows that they've been working with this buyer for the last six to eight weeks, trying to find them home, probably lost seven to 10 deals, now goes into a home where they're getting $999, which again, I'm not arguing if that's fair or not. I'm just saying in comparison to the two or two and a half percent that they would have received on a million dollar property as their commission, they're now looking at $999. If there is an opportunity for that agent to pick at something in that home, I would hope they're not lying about it. But if there was an opportunity, be it location, be it finishes, be it upgrades, whatever it may be, let's just think rationally. Of course, they're going to point those things out. Their intent is there. Now, on the flip side, they may say this is the perfect home for you, Mr. Buyer or Mrs. Buyer. However, I'm going to remind you that you're under contract. For the last eight weeks that I've worked with you and for the hundreds of hours that I've spent showing you homes and writing offers, that my contract states that I am entitled to a 2.5% compensation of the purchase price. So here's what's going to happen. I'm going to receive $999 from the seller and the balance of that, I'm going to have to collect from you because you're contractually obligated for me to be paid that. So for those buyers, when you're signing a buyer representation agreement, be very mindful of the fact that you are saying to that realtor for the time and energy and the professionalism and everything that you're going to do to create an opportunity for me to buy a home, that I'm going to ensure that you get between two or two and a half percent or whatever that number is on that buyer representation agreement. So there's another reason that buyers agents will discourage buyers from buying properties where their compensation is less, because now that buyer needs to dig deep into their pockets and compensate the realtor who's representing them the difference between what they received from the seller and what they didn't receive.
0: Fascinating discussion, and I'm sure we could go on, but we have to take another short break. Uh, We'll be back in just a few minutes. My guest, Faisal Susiwala of REMAX Twin City Realty. Learn more at homeshack.com or call him at 519-624-5555. We'll return in just a couple of minutes here on City News 570. Thanks so much for joining us. This is Ask the Experts. My guest is Faisal Walla, Canada's top real estate agent with Remax, City Realty. 519-624-5555 is the number to get a hold of him or learn more at homeshack.com um earlier in the show we were talking about some of the changes uh with canadian mortgage and housing and one of the things we didn't actually touch on is the fact that right now the cap on getting a cmhc insured mortgage is 1 million bucks but they want to increase it to 1.25 million what's your take on that yeah
1: that's a great point so again the band-aid solutions that we're seeing the government come up with and thinking that that's going to be the solution Getting people into housing and controlling the real estate market, I think this is another one of those things that's going to backfire and is only going to cause prices to increase. And I'm shocked that CMHC would raise the level on which they will put a secure premium insured mortgage. So, right now, you can borrow on, you can purchase up to $1 million, and CMHC will provide a Insured mortgage on that. You'll pay a premium, but you could get up to a million dollars insured through a same HC. First $500,000, you have to put 5% down. The balance, the next $500,000, you have to put at least 10% down. Um, and that is up to a million dollars. Now, if you buy a home for $1.1 million, as the rules start right now, they will not insure that mortgage. You will have to come up with that $100,000 on your own. So, the cap is being increased to 1250000 Now, as a realtor, when I approach a seller and I feel that the house is probably worth somewhere around a million twenty, a million twenty-five, or a million dollars, I will most likely list that home for 999,000. I'll hold offers, uh, hold off on offers for a week, and see what kind of bids we get, and then we'll see. But what I'm doing is I'm opening up to an audience, a larger audience, a larger pool of buyers. Because because it's $999, they know that they can get up to a million dollars insured mortgage. I have more buyers looking at that property because that's the cap. Now, what do you think is going to happen when the cap is $1,250,000? Naturally, I'm going to be in a position now to increase my list price to perhaps 1.1 or 1.2 million dollars because I have a larger pool of buyers that can afford to buy that home because now they can get insured on a purchase price of 1,250,000. dollars. It makes absolutely no sense to me that the government would want to increase the CMHC cap to one million two hundred and fifty thousand dollars as a solution to allow more people to buy homes. The solu- the, what's going to happen? It's just going to help the people that were getting a million dollars for their home get more money. And that is absolutely 100% my belief that next year we will see an increase in homes that were hovering around a million dollars. They'll jump probably 10 to 15% as a result of the CMHC problem fault band-aid solution that's not going to work all right uh, and
0: I, i'm sad to say you're probably right i can i can see the logic in that since we're already talking about what's going to be happening into the spring of next year let's take a look at what you think uh the mark is going to look like as we head into 2022
1: <laughs> Well, I'm very, very positive on the market. I think that the interest rates are going to remain somewhat around where we are. It might go up, you know, a quarter percent or so. Again, nothing damaging to the market. Uh, Supply is going to remain very low. Uh, Demand is going to be unlike anything we have ever seen before. In fact, I've been advising my sellers who are thinking about putting their home on the market in November or December to wait until March, April, May because I truly believe from a seller's perspective that they're going to see probably another 7 to 10% increase coming into the spring. And by that, I also want to speak to the buyers. If we're expecting an increase in March, April, May of another 10%, buyers should be out right now looking at what's available and snatching up anything they can. What we may feel is extremely overpriced today, or it's way too much to pay for a home today, we're gonna be looking back next year, May, June, saying, wow, that was a pretty good deal. So be mindful of what's happening in the marketplace because the fundamentals haven't changed. Supply is going to continue to decline. Demand is gonna continue to increase. We talked earlier on the show about interest uh, rates being um, stagnant that they're not going to rise, and that immigration is going to continue at levels like we've never seen before and those people are going to need a place to stay and we're going to see that demand specifically hit waterloo region and we're going to see the market increase i i truly believe that
0: as we finish off the show uh, i think it's always valuable to mention again the book the real deal. It has proved very popular and I'm just wondering if you could give us a a quick uh, pricey of of what we're going to see if we pick up a copy of the book.
1: Uh, Thanks for mentioning that. Yeah so that book was written uh, early on in the COVID uh, months and uh, it's basically a journal and uh, the journey of my life starting out as an 18 year old high school student uh, that wanted to become a real estate agent and I Uh, sort of chronicle what the challenges were, what the struggles were. So I really wanted to write that book as an inspiration to a lot of young people who feel that they're lost and they're not fitting into that lane of going to university, becoming a doctor, lawyer, or engineer, that there's other hope, there's other options, and there's other things to, to, to look at that as long as you're doing something that makes you happy and that you enjoy doing, you could succeed. And in addition to that, I also talk a lot about real estate strategies for colleagues, People who are in the business, um, I often get asked, you know, what have you done in your life to help you reach some success? And I like to share that. And lastly, I have lots of tips on investment and how to build wealth in real estate and what steps one should be taking at a very early age to make sure that they have a secure future and that they leave a legacy behind after they've passed on. Because let's face it, things are going to be difficult for our kids. Things are going to be difficult for this generation to enter the real estate market to own any type of property. So everything we can do right now is going to create a legacy and leave something for you for your retirement and also leave something behind for them to give them a good start in life. Uh, So those are sort of the highlights of the book. And um, I've been really, really pleased with the uh, feedback that I've been getting on it. Thanks for mentioning it.
0: If you'd like to get your copy, Amazon.ca. If you are an audiobook fan, you're in luck because it's available as an audiobook as well. Faisal, thanks so much for being on the show with us again.
1: Thank you for having me. Always look forward
0: to it. We'll talk to you again soon. And I want to thank you for listening to another edition of Ask the Experts. If you'd like to get more info on Faisal, go to homeshack.com or call 519-624-5555. Join us again next Saturday for more of Ask the Experts here on City News 570.